So by a show of hands, uh, just out of curiosity, by a show of hands, how many of you were at some point in your life or are currently part of a family? Everybody, right? It's like asking by a show of hands how many of you were born. We were all born into a family, and we don't get to choose the family into which we were born. And family can be awesome. They can be so fun and such a blessing. And family can be hard and complicated. There are ways that nobody else can encourage us like family can, and there are ways in which nobody can hurt us the way sometimes that family can. So let me ask you this. Think about your home now. The home that you live in now, your household. And if you're single or if, if you're an empty nester, think about maybe the house you grew up in or, or the house you raised your kids in. Think about that place. How would you describe the overall mood of that home? Is it peaceful? Tranquil? Calm in the storm? Spa-like? <laughs> or is it more like stressful, yelling, that kind of stuff? Strife? Maybe some kind of combination of, of, of both. That's often true in our house. Far too often, in fact, in our house, I would say that no one who comes to our house would, you know, would mistake it for a spa. We're a house with two working parents and three kids and a dog and lots of chaos and we're big personalities and there's lots of yelling and that sort of stuff. In fact, um, some of that can be you know, just dismissed as you know, life stage there's lots of little kids yelling the I hate you's and the, you know, he took my toy and she won't let me play and those sorts of things. We actually have a name that we've given uh, to, to Ellie, our five-year-old. She does this thing that we call scrocking. It's a combination of screaming and talking at the same time. And she and Ben, in fact, do it so much that they have these constantly, perpetually raspy voices. And people are like, oh, they've got the cutest voice. I'm like, that's because you don't know that they have it because they scream at each other so much that they've gone hoarse. <laughs> that's the only reason they have those cute Voice is that recently spilled out into the real world a couple of weeks ago, right here at church. We were leaving church, and uh, as we were walking out, my two littles are there, and Ben's a little bit farther behind. And my beautiful, wonderful, darling five year old princess turns around and screams across the lobby, I hate you, you stupid butt face. <laughs> <laughs> and Karen and I turn around, and like, this is whole, the entire lobby is full of people all smiling at us. And the whole kids' men table is there, like, to check in. They're like, wow, I'm like, Pastor! <laughs> Parent of the year. <laughs> and to a certain extent, I mean, that could be dismissed. Just as, hey, that's the stuff that kids do. You know, and I, after the first service, I had so many parents that said, yeah, kids do exactly that. But I think sometimes there's more than that as well. Kara and I were having a conversation now a few months ago with our 13-year-old Ian, who's at snow camp this week. And we were sitting on the couch, and it had been a rough evening. And he said, and he just kind of leveled with me, and he said, you know, Dad, our house sometimes stresses me out. Like, you and mom are so busy, and you work so much, and you're so tired, and you're so stressed out. It just seems like everybody yells at everybody all the time, and it just stresses me out. It's a profound thing when your adolescent, you know, makes you aware of a, of a brokenness in your life that you're not aware of and speaks that kind of truth. Uh, and while it was hard to hear, I'm so glad that he brought it to our attention. You know, fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, I know that we aren't alone. I mean, there's all kinds of studies that have been done that show that we as a culture are going faster and faster and faster. We've never led lives that are this stressed out. And we bring that stress into our homes. There's, there's an article that I read in the New York Times recently. It came out back in April, but it says this. At this point, it's difficult to imagine a slice of time whose resident humans would not agree with the notion that their lives were more hectically modern, more anxiety-inducing, more in need of the occasional benzo, than ever before. 
We bring that stress, that busyness, that, that exhaustion into our homes. And oftentimes it turns into explosions. It comes out sideways. And home is the one place where we can let ourselves be just as nasty as we want with each other. Home should be a safe place, but sometimes it's safe to be nasty. We had another conversation with our eight-year-old now a few months ago, my wife and I. We had just gotten done with his parent-teacher conference. And we came home we said, Ben... Your teacher said you're amazing. Like you're so nice and obedient and quiet and still you're helpful with the other kids and you're always an encourager. Why can't we ever see that Ben at home? And he thought for a while and he kind of scrunched up his face and with real strain, he said, mom and dad, I work so hard all week long to be good. When I get home on Friday, I just have to let my naughty out. <laughs> and I, I think all of us can relate. To that home is the one place that we don't have to, you know, put on a fake face. We don't have to pretend to be nice. We can say exactly what we think and let our naughty out. And maybe that's natural, but it can be so, so hurtful to one another because no one can hurt us like family. So there's a little snapshot into our family life. Welcome. <laughs> but I'm guessing that I'm not alone even in this room. In sometimes having those occasional moments. If the first service is any indication, I know I'm not alone in having that. But as we've been going through the series on prayer and, and seeing what Scripture has to say about prayer, the Apostle Paul paints a very different picture of what the life of a follower of Jesus Christ can look like. The Apostle Paul, who's writing from prison, because he himself has been imprisoned for proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ, He's had his freedom taken away and he's in chains. He's writing to a group of other Christians, these young Christians who have also been persecuted and imprisoned and lost their properties, and some of whom have even been killed. And from that place of pain, writing to a group of people who's in pain, he writes these words. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Gentleness isn't the word that I would use to describe a lot of the interactions in our house. <laughs> I've got two boys, and actually the little girl is just as tough. There's not gentleness in our interactions, the interactions we sometimes hope our neighbors aren't overhearing. And yet Paul is saying that gentleness should so mark a Christian's life that it's evident to all that they're a follower of Christ, even in the hardest of times, that we can rejoice in all circumstances. So how does Paul say that we can do that. It just seems so counterintuitive. Continuing to the next verse, he says, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I think we shouldn't rush through some of those superlatives. These are verses that we've maybe heard many, many times, but he says so clearly, don't be anxious about anything, so that in every situation, our response can be peace and rejoicing and gentleness that's evident to all in response to stress in every situation we can be known for our gentleness in prison, in persecution at the end of a hard week and when the chaos of life is overwhelming Paul continues next verse and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus peace isn't a word that often describes our home. Not often enough. And he's saying this peace is so evident that not only will we experience it, will we get to live in that peace of God, but that peace will actually guard our hearts and our minds. And I think we can extrapolate our homes 
It can become a shield of peace in our homes if we're willing to bring our petitions and our prayers and our, our pains and our needs to God. I want that for myself. I want that for my family. I mean, that is a, a truth, a promise that Scripture proclaims. And yet, not, not just Scripture. It's actually borne out in science as well. There was a study that came out now a couple of years ago out of Notre Dame. Uh, it was called The Family Religious Involvement and the Quality of Parental Relationship for Families in Early Adolescence. It's very specific. Have you read it? It's good. <laughs> Super good. Uh, essentially, these sociologists asked adolescents to report how many times per week their family engaged in religious activities, specifically reading the Bible, going to church, and praying together. And then they asked them follow-up questions to describe some of the qualities and the nature of the relationships in their home. So they could establish sort of a baseline of kids that experience one and experience the other. And what was interesting, it says this in the executive summary. It says, religiously involved families of early adolescents from 12 to 14 living in the United States appear to have significantly stronger relationships between mothers and fathers than families that are not religiously active. And then a little bit further down in the summary, it says, teens were asked questions such as whether their mothers and fathers express love for each other, compromise with each other, insult each other, and other indicators of quality, both positive and negative, of parental relationships. And I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down in trying to like exegete a science report, but there's some really interesting stuff that, that demonstrates that our engagement as families in religious activities has a real and lasting impact on the quality of relationships that these kids reported. The first one, for instance, it asked the question of whether the mother <clears throat> encouraged the father. And I'm going to read just a little bit of the report here. It's a little bit long, but bear with me. It says, all three dimensions of family involvement, so those are prayer, Bible reading, and worship, all three dimensions of family religious involvement are associated positively with mothers encouraging fathers. According to youth reports, 45% of youth from families that do something religious one or two days a week report that their mother always encourages or helps their father to do something that's important to him. That's, that's worth noting. Something that's important to him. This percentage increases to 59% for youth from families involved in religious activities five to seven days per week. So for those of us who are in the club already, that's not surprising. You know, religion makes you better people, right? Better living through Christianity. Is that all this is? The study continues, and it gets more specific, and this is where I think it's helpful for us. <clears throat> the next one asks the question about the mothers expressing love to father. According to youth reports, mothers from religiously active families are significantly more likely to express affection or love to fathers as compared to families that are not religiously active. So again, no surprise there. We would expect that. We're fans of this, right? But then it goes on further. Having a, having a parent who attends worship services is not statistically associated with youth reporting that their mother expresses love to the father. However, youth with a parent who prays more than once a day are significantly more likely than youth with a parent who does not pray as often to believe that their mother always expresses love to their father. I think that's interesting. I mean, now I'm not saying you shouldn't come to church every week. You totally should. This is really important. But I think what this tells us is as important as this is, as valuable as this time is, this is not as impactful on your family and on your kids as the time that you are spending in your homes praying. 
It's not as impactful as them seeing you and believing that you are involved in prayer. It has real measurable impact on how they perceive our relationship. The next slide, and I won't read all of these, but the, the next slide says mother compromises with father. And it gets the same thing. Generally, families are better for having engaged in religious activities. But specifically, while parental worship service attendance is not statistically associated, youth with a parent who prays more than once a day are more likely to report that their mother is always, always as fair and willing to compromise than our youth with a parent who does not pray as frequently. Prayer seems to be the common denominator in all of these. All of the reports that go on and talk about prayer being the thing that is actually the greatest indicator of relational health in families. He goes and lists all of these other questions, and I won't read them all, but like mother blames father, or mother insults father, or mother screams at father. They don't mention scrocking. I think maybe they should have. Uh, and in each case, there's a positive correlation between families that engage in religious activities and them having positive family relationships, particularly between the mother and father. And in each, prayer, more than any other religious activity we do, demonstrates a positive relationship, has the highest correlation and impact. Now, lest you think that this study is too hard on mom, uh, it does go through and list all the same statistics for dads and dad's relationship to mom. And, and the evidence is just as clear. In fact, in, in many ways, it's actually clearer that the way that we impact dads engaging in these things, we actually see even more evidence that these things are true. Kids who report their parents praying daily also report healthier home lives. I think that's worth noting. Another article uh, by an organization called Focus on the Family, which I'm sure many of you have heard of, pointed to some possible reasons why home relationships are enriched by prayer together. <clears throat> it says shared experiences of prayer quickly become opportunities to express mutual love, forgiveness, and grace. It's hard to hold on to grudges and cherish resentments when we're on our knees together before the Lord. As an act of shared intimacy, prayer creates family cohesiveness and strengthens the bond between husband and wife, brother and sister, parent and child. To paraphrase, they're saying it's much harder to scrock at and call your brother a stupid butt face <laughs> if you've been praying together. And they point out that this isn't just true for parents and kids. This is, this is true across the board. This is true with siblings. This is true with aunts and uncles. This is true with adult children who pray for their adult parents, some of whom maybe don't deserve it, some of whom aren't going to reciprocate, some of whom you've had a very difficult and complicated relationship with. There's evidence, as we, as we looked at last week, that prayer and praying for someone allows us to begin to see them in new ways like God sees them. The act of praying itself changes us. And increases our relational health. Who doesn't want that? Why wouldn't we want better family relationships? These relationships that are so fundamental. So why don't we? I mean, if it's, if it's biblically commanded and empirically proven to improve our most fundamental relationships, why don't we do this more? Well, I think perhaps for me, if I'm honest, I don't experience this in my family the way that I could. Because I have not made prayer in my family or in my life the way that I could. Does that make sense? Paul promises that if we bring our prayers, we will experience this. If we bring our petitions with thanksgiving to God, we will experience this. Do we? I remember, my, I remember as a kid that my dad, um, every morning, 
got up at like 5 or 5.30, and he would sit on the couch in our family room. We had one lamp on in the whole house. And he would sit there, and he'd pull up a chair from the, the uh, kitchen table so he could put his feet up on the chair, and he'd pull out his living Bible and a cup of coffee. And he'd spend just a little bit of time reading through a couple of passages. And then he had a list that he pulled out. He has a little pencil. He's an architect. He's a little architectural pencil. And he would have this list of all the things that he wrote out that he was praying for. And then he would be updating and he'd be changing and he'd be writing on the backside of it. And I knew as a kid that at 5 o'clock or 5.30 in the morning, that is where my dad was going to be in a silent, dark house, spending time praying and bringing these things, bringing my family, bringing people in our church, issues around us, his work, all these different things before God. I just knew that. I could still picture it in my mind. Well, I'll tell you that if my kids picture me in the morning... <laughs> I might be sitting on the couch, but it's not going to be 5 a.m. And I probably won't have a Bible in my hand. I'll probably have some kind of device in my hand because I'm probably texting or emailing or surfing the web. I might be on a Bible app, but I might not be. My kids don't have that same picture. Not yet. So why not? What are the barriers that have kept my family, that have kept me from experiencing this in our family? And some of these are so basic. Maybe you've nailed these, and, and this is silly, but I'm going to share with you what I've found in my life to be barriers, and hopefully you can resonate with those. Maybe they're helpful for you. If not, if you've nailed this, then you can just zone out. That's totally fine. Help write a book. Um, I think for a lot of us, the idea of bringing prayer to our family feels unnatural. It feels weird. I mean, for us to pray maybe ourselves is natural, but to go to our spouse or to our children and pray just feels awkward. Maybe we don't pray with our kids or our spouse because maybe it feels like embarrassing on some level. I don't even know how to describe that, but I know that I felt it. Like if it would feel weird, like what if they don't like it or what if they don't want to or what if I shouldn't or, or whatever. I'm not suggesting that like tonight you go home and say, instead of watching the Super Bowl, kids, <laughs> we're going to spend two hours in silent prayer. <laughs> that, that will not go well. And that will feel unnatural. <clears throat> and it'll feel unnatural because that's not a pattern perhaps you've already developed in your life. See, it starts with me. It starts, it starts with you making those, those small and even uh, incremental steps towards developing these patterns in my life. I am not going to now suddenly go to 5 a.m. wake-ups every single day where I'm reading my scripture for an hour, but I could try that once. I could add it once into my week and try to find out where is that rhythm in my life. Maybe it's not 5 a.m., but taking little tiny steps to move toward that because the more that I experience it, the less awkward it becomes to invite someone else into it. It's always awkward to invite someone else into an experience that you yourself haven't had. Inviting someone to a restaurant that you've never been to is always more awkward than inviting them to a restaurant that you know you love. Right? And so once we've experienced this, once we've experienced the benefits of this, once we begin to see that joy, that peace, it's far easier to invite someone else into that. Chris often refers, uh, uh, he often says that transformation, spiritual transformation is a 20-mile march. It's not an overnight thing. You're not going to win this in, in, in one bold attempt. It's making small incremental steps, one at a time, that move us in the direction of holiness and righteousness and towards God. And maybe that first step this week is to start to build that routine. And then at some point, Invite others, invite your kids, or invite your spouse, or invite your roommate, or, or whomever to join you in that journey. Don't wait till it's perfect, until you've mastered it totally, because you won't. But take a few steps, and then invite someone into the journey with you, to walk alongside of you as you journey. What might that invitation look like? Again, these are things that we are learning about in our own family, that, that we are stumbling through in our own family that I want to share with you. 
uh, one of the ways, obviously, that, that, that we pray, that I, I'm sure many of you pray, is that we, we pray at mealtimes, always. Not always perfectly, not always profoundly, but always. Even in restaurants, we pray. I remember quickly, this isn't on my script, but I remember as quickly, we were, we were at a restaurant when I was a kid, and we were with a bunch of friends from church, and someone said, hey, Bob, would you pray? And so Bob stands up in the middle of Pizza Hut and goes, let's pray. <laughs> and, like, they turned off the radio in the kitchen. <laughs> I was like, it wasn't the whole restaurant, just this table. <laughs> it's, not always, it's not always comfortable, but we've, we've just decided that that's going to be a pattern that we do as a family. Before meals, we're going to pause. We're going to say thanks because that expresses value to our children. That this is something we do. It expresses gratitude to God. It's a pattern and a discipline that we've said we want this to be a regular part of our rhythms, that we are praying together. It's minor, but it's a small step. At bedtime, we always pray with each kid. And by always, I mean most often, sometimes. (laughs) We're working on it. But, but bedtime is one of those times that, that, that just is natural or can feel more natural. One, one of the things that I found over the last year, um, for years, our kids always wanted them to lay by them at bedtime. And that's great. You know, it's a really nice time. It's a sweet time of, of laying together. And, and, and at some point, I would feel that parental guilt of, like, we should pray. And so I would, I would say, like, well, we should pray, which is fine. Except even in a subtle way, that communicates because prayer is an obligation and we should do it even if we don't really feel like it. Which wasn't my intention, and yet suddenly, maybe that's belying how I actually feel. And so about a year ago, I started just a minor, small shift in the way that I position it, the way that I think about it. I started asking my kids, can I pray for you? And I think even though that's small, that's minor, in my mind, it reframes this idea of prayer. It takes this thing that could easily be understood as an obligation that we should do so that we can check off the list. I'm not a bad parent. It says, I want this to be an invitation to my child, a gift to say, may I? Can I pray for you? And it invites them to actually engage and interact, even in subtle ways with that. And I think bedtime is a great time to do it. I I think a lot of times kids, um, bedtime, at least for my kids, that is the time of the day where they're willing to actually talk. It's the time of the day where they're willing to talk about something hard that happened at school or friends that they're having a hard time with or budding romances or or whatever those things are. Bedtime, it's probably a stalling technique. But bedtime is the time that they're willing to talk about it. And because I've built the pattern of saying, can I pray for you? It's really easy then. It's really natural then in those moments to say, wow, that sounds difficult. I don't have an answer for that. Can I pray for you? Or wow, let me celebrate. That sounds amazing. I can't believe that's going on. Let's thank God together for that. Can I pray for you in those moments? It's simply more Natural. And that, and that question, can I pray for you, then also makes it easier to go to that place of prayer together with my kids throughout the entire other elements of life as well. As an example, uh, Ian and I have spent countless hours over the last couple of months on weekends driving to basketball tournaments. And we spend the whole drive there talking about what Ian needs to do to improve his game and how he can become a starter and all the different things, blah, blah, blah. And we spend the whole drive home talking about how terrible the refing was and how the other team <laughs> cheated, right? I know you've had these conversations. And I realized a couple months ago that this is an opportunity. This is a time where we're already talking about something that really matters to Ian, something that's really central to his life right now. And so a couple months ago, we started just as we pull up into the parking lot at the space, we just pause. And I say, can I pray for you? And we take a minute right there in the parking lot to pray through the game, to pray about the game they were about to have. And it's not just like, God, help us win, which we say plenty during the game. (laughs) But in this moment, we say, 
God, help us to honor you in the way that we play this game. Help us to represent you well in this game. Help us to represent you well as we're dealing with refs and coaches and players who maybe take cheap shots. Help us to demonstrate your character and your fairness and your love and your grace today. Be honored in this. And, you know, it just reframes the whole experience. It's a simple little act that takes two or three minutes. It's not these profound, then, Lord, we beseech thee, therefore... You know, it's God help us to, to honor you in this. Be pleased in this. Let this be an act of worship. And it changes profoundly the way we experience it. Karen and I have talked about um, that has been a fairly easy step to make that shift of can I pray for you. The, the next step for me that we've begun to explore is the idea of going to the next question from can I pray for you to will you pray for me? to go to our kids in age-appropriate ways and say, can you pray for us in this situation? So this last week, um, last Friday, so nine days ago, we were supposed to have a weekend away. I wasn't here last weekend. We were supposed to have a weekend away, and I went downstairs to get some stuff out of the freezer. And I walked back into our utility room, and I'm squish, squish. And I went, oh. And we had like two inches of water in our basement because the sewer line had backed up. And I called the company out, and they came out, and they worked on it for hours. At the end of the day, they basically said, we can't fix it. Uh, you now need to tear up your whole backyard. It's going to be many thousands of dollars, and uh, we can have a crew out here tomorrow. <laughs> um, and we got a second opinion. And we then spent, like, the next five days um, living with my parents. Um, let's see, I need, to, I need to find where this is in my notes because I, I want to make sure I actually get this right. There we go. Uh, and because the basement flooded... Uh, it drove some mice that we didn't realize we even had in our basement. It drove them up to the upstairs of the house, like our kitchen and our living room and all those places, which is fun. That's a fun revelation. And so our kitchen is full of like the stuff that we, this dirty, gross stuff that we brought up from the downstairs is now in our kitchen, mouse traps all over the place, just gross. And we can't run water, which means we can't flush our toilet. We can't wash that gross laundry. We can't wash our hands or shower. It was just absolutely gross. It was just this hopeless feeling, and I've never considered arson. Uh, but in that moment, in that moment, it seemed like the easiest option, truly. <laughs> and so we spent uh, the next five days staying at my parents' house and coming back to the house and, you know, emptying mouse traps and meeting with these different contractors and meeting with people from the city. And we had, like, the superintendent of the city come out. It was a hassle. It was a huge deal. And in all of it, it was just sort of horrible and lots of moments of dread. But in each of those moments, it was an opportunity for me and for Kara to say, God, I don't, I don't, know, what, I don't know the answer. I don't know what we're going to do about this. We don't have the $10,000 that it's going to take to fix this. I don't know how to go to my neighbor and say, we're going to dig up your whole yard to fix this. By the way, I have a legal easement. Doesn't do any good. He's still digging up his yard. Um, you know, God, I'm trusting, I'm trusting contractors that I don't really know. It's all underground. I can't see. I just have to take their word for it. This feels gross, and I'm not sure what we're doing or how this is going to work out. And it was an opportunity for us to go to our kids and in an age-appropriate way say, guys, this is, this is a big deal. Can we pray about this as a family? Will you pray about this as a family? During, during the middle of the week that I got a, an email from Kara uh, that just said, the subject line was, just to make our week more stressful, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and she had been offered a different job at Northwestern where she works. And while that was super exciting, we had some huge decisions to make right in the middle of that. And they needed an answer right away. And... Uh, it was an opportunity for us as a couple and as a family to say, this is a big deal. This is going to change our life and our rhythms. 
Can we pray about this as a family? Will you pray with us, kids? So back to the sewer thing. On Wednesday afternoon, uh, after days and days of working on this, the company that we ended up working with finally was able to resolve everything. And I've never been so happy to flush a toilet in my whole life. <laughs> and we had this moment where we're downstairs, and it was actually my dad and Ian and I. Uh, we were downstairs just kind of cleaning up, you know, towels and all those sorts of things. And we had this chance just to debrief and to say, so how did that go? Like, how? I mean, we this time of praising God and just thanking God that, that this worked out. And then how did we do in the face of these contractors who were clearly trying to rip us off? Did we honor Christ? Did we, did we honor God? Did we demonstrate godly character in that situation? Did we with the city workers who did their best, but at the end basically ended up saying, we got nothing to do. We, can, we can't help you with this. Did we honor God in that interaction? Did we did honor God with the interactions with the people that did end up working with us and clearing this up for us? How did we do? Actually, I, I, uh, I haven't told my wife this, but I got an email this morning actually from the guy who owns the company that we ended up working with. And I don't have any indication based on his language that he was a believer and he wrote me an email at 1.25.7 this morning that said, hey, we're so glad we could do this. I think God, you, God led you to us to bless you. And I thought, how cool that somehow in the interactions we had with them as a family, they knew that we were Christians. They knew that, that, that I mean, that somehow that would, that would point them to God is just amazing. Um, and we had a chance right there in the basement with my dad and Ian and I just to celebrate, to praise God and say, yeah, you know what? I think in this situation we did well. And it's okay. I mean, we didn't do it perfectly. I hope we never get a chance to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) But we learned and we grew and we leaned on God and we didn't panic. And God proved himself faithful and good. And I think in those moments, you know, the praying before meals and the praying before bedtime and the praying during family crises, those are opportunities that are pretty easy to start to build these patterns. But there's another barrier that I think probably all of us in this room on some level face. It's a barrier that's just pervasive in our culture, as we said earlier, and that is that life is just too full. And if you're filling in your notes, that's our second fill in. I think for some of us, for many of us, it's simply lives that are so full and so full of stimuli that there simply isn't time or space or silence for prayer. Solitude, the idea of being quiet, And reflecting is going the way of like the newspaper and the fax machine and the home-cooked meal. Tim Keller, who we've heard a lot from in this series, says, We know from empirical secular studies that everyone in our Western society today has less solitude. There's less and less of our days or our months or our weeks in which we are unplugged when we're not listening to something or talking to somebody or texting This is due to the pervasiveness of social media, the internet, and various sorts of electronic devices. In the past, most people couldn't avoid solitude, but now there isn't any. We don't pray because our minds and our schedules don't have any space left. We have to actually make room in our schedules, but also in our mental space in order to have the capacity to do this. And, and what's bizarre is that we do this and we do this naturally in other areas of our life, right? We cut out bad food for health and we do all kinds of dietary supplements and cleanses. Those are choices that we make. We do yoga and we add rowing classes and Pilates and we get up early to work out. Those are choices that we make. We drive our kids miles and miles and miles and give up evenings and weekends for sports. Those are choices that we make. And if we're honest, I think many of us, we have the margin in our lives, we've just filled it up with stuff that's optional 
I mean, none of that's bad. Those are all good things. But they're the choices that we've made on how we're going to spend and invest our times and our lives fill up in the disciplines that many of us are able to employ in other areas of our lives like diet and fitness go unused around spiritual disciplines like prayer. Because prayer, of course, like exercise, like diet, it is 100% optional. It's completely a choice that we make or choose not to do. And yet, if it is as central to what the Bible claims it is, if it's as central as what science claims that it is to us having healthy and good relationships, perhaps it needs to move from optional to central. And not based on some pious guilt motivation. But because biblically and scientifically, it's proven that it makes us happier people. It makes us better at being husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and roommates. We're better people relationally when we engage in this. And yet it's hard. I love the Yancey book that Chris recommended throughout this series. I love both of them. The Tim Keller book is really good too. But the Yancey book is, just speaks my language. And I tend to put people like Philip Yancey kind of up on this pedestal. Like they're just giants of the faith who just have nailed all of this stuff. But he talks about the fact that this is hard even for him. This idea of intentionally building in techniques. He says, by nature, I resist techniques, especially those relating to spiritual disciplines. I prefer to keep my relationship with God impromptu. <laughs> Which I think is just a great way of saying how most of us probably operate a lot of the times. Like, I want to be spontaneous. <laughs> he says, the problem is every time I proceed down such an idealistic path, God gets pushed to the side. I need markers to remind me of another world out there, a hidden reality to which my, on which my life should center. If prayer is my response to God's presence, I must first tune into that presence. I think the only way to break through this barrier is to rearrange our lives. And that's going to mean purging some things from life. I mean, we, this can't just be a guilt trip to add even more to lives that are already over full. We're going to have to actually carve out some mental, emotional, and literal time to do this. And that's hard, even for Philippiancy. And yet, if we don't, we will never experience, my family will never experience the kind of peace and gentleness that Scripture promises us if we will. If I'm willing to bring my cares, my concerns, and my petitions to God... We're going to continue this conversation next week. But before we move on, I want, to, I want to just continue where Paul leaves off in Philippians. And let's go back to see what he says happens next. The very next verse. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So as you, as a person, and as a family, as a household, are trying to decide what are ways in which we can purge, what are ways in which we can make room in our lives, I think Paul gives this to us to a certain extent as something of a litmus test, something of a, a rubric against we, which we can hold and make decisions. And I know that it sounds like, I, I'm sure that it sounds like I, I hit this hammer too many times, like every time I'm up here, but one of the things we're finding in our family is that media has to be one of the things that we just put tighter controls on, tighter guidelines around in our house. We all love our screens all the time. But right now, those things, those are the very things that are pushing out the opportunities for silence, the opportunities for reflection, the opportunities to read, the opportunities to do devotions. And if we're holding up the standard that Paul gives us here of saying, boy, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, if we're holding that up against the media that we're choosing, 
it suddenly becomes a much easier choice on a lot of what we're watching, a lot of what we're allowing to fill up our house. I think in a lot of ways I thought of this. I think the, 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 the cultural tide, tidal wave of, of, that's rushing into our house like a backed-up sewer <laughs> is so much pressure to, to, to fill our entire house, to fill our entire lives with these messages that we would be more content if we had this product. We'd be more content if we had this body. We'd be more content. We'd be happy if we... These ideas of what love is and these ideas of what acceptance is that are just garbage, and we know that. And yet we've allowed those very things, and a lot of times, to crowd out the chance we have to actually experience God's truth being spoken into us by God and by his word. And so our family is trying to figure out how do we put boundaries around this thing that is so pervasive. We'll continue, like I said, this conversation next week. We'll look at how we pray as a church and how even some of the things that we're doing right now as families that are in this space is, in fact, prayer, is, in fact, modeling and engaging in these things as a family. But now we're going to continue um, by going to God in communion. This is one of the ways that we, as followers of Christ, get to take our imperfect, broken relationships that are represented in this room, and we together join them to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who live in perfect relationship and we get to bring these relationships together to add a third party to our broken marriages and our broken relationships and in that we get to experience god and his perfection speaking and shaping and changing us as we do we always prepare ourselves by by taking a time of reflection of asking god to to do the work of inspecting us to do the work of exposing to us areas where maybe we've caused hurt we've caused brokenness Areas where we've put other priorities in our life and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal those to us that we might confess those to God. So I'm going to ask the band to come up now and we're going to take a moment to do that. As we do, I want to read these final words from Paul. He says in verse 9, What you have learned and you have received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Put them into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. We... Every week we say some variation of we invite you to experience God with us. And what Paul is saying here is if you will put these things into practice, then the peace of God is something that you will experience in real and tangible ways. And that very peace will guard your hearts and your minds and your homes.